So good evening, everyone. Welcome. Um, my name is Gokhan. I'm coming to you from the monastery. And it is my um, honor to um, welcome and, and introduce Rima Vesely Flad, who's here with us this evening, um, to be in conversation with a couple of Sangha members and to speak about um, some of the work she's been doing recently in her, in her new book. Um, called Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition, Practice of Stillness in the Movement for Liberation. Um, Rima is a um, Buddhist practitioner. She's practiced a little bit here at the monastery, is very involved in the insight meditation tradition, and is currently a visiting professor of Buddhism and Black Studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She's also been Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy and the Director of Peace and Justice Studies at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. And her focus, her scholarly focuses on critical race theory and religious ethics. And so we're really pleased to have her with us this, this evening um, to share um, the work that she's been doing and some of her insights. So, um, Rima, welcome, and thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you so much. It's also my honor to be invited, and um, Shugan will remember that this was, this, this community was actually my first Dharma community. So um, I have very fond memories of sitting at Fire Lotus Temple and coming to the monastery a few times, and, and Shugan was my first teacher, and I mentioned to him I still quote him often the way you meet yourself is the way you meet the world mm -hmm. I, I really um, am very honored to be with you and to share some of my my research and I also want to say I'm very impressed with the dedication of the people of African descent Sangha within the larger Sangha. Uh, the members have put a lot of time and energy into organizing this event and being very thoughtful and present. So Robin and Chike and Carmen, I, I really think you are so, so very committed to this work and to this community, and it really shows. So I, I'll just say a little bit about what has brought me to your community today. Um, what has led me to write this book. I'll hold it up. It looks like this. Um, the cover art is by a friend who is a sculptor um, and who is just very capable, I, I think, um, with an art of, of letting us know how important it is to be able to settle even as we move into the world. And we are both forced to confront and we also take on conditions that can be so debilitating and quite devastating. So just a little bit about the origins then of this, of this work. And I'll begin by saying that I come out of grassroots activism. I was actually in New York City um, at Columbia University in my early 20s and took to the streets when Amadou Diallo was murdered. And from there, you know, got involved with the Black Radical Congress and and other organizing communities. I worked full-time as an organizer before going back to graduate school and finishing my PhD. In the midst of all of that is what I sat at Fire Lotus, so it's a little bit of my own history. But it is to say that, first and foremost, I have been, I think, um, 
very accountable in my research to grassroots activists and to people who are on the front lines and putting their bodies out there day after day. I, I hold those voices, that determination, that integrity in front of me. And my scholarship is an attempt to respond to their fierceness, the fierceness of these vanguard activists. And more recently, of course, uh, especially since 2014, we've had Black Lives Matter and activists who in a, a very similar way and also a very different way have taken to the streets in the same vein as civil rights activists. And I find their courage to be so important and their, their time, their commitment. In Ferguson, night after night after night, activists went and held vigil in front of the Ferguson Police Department. It was the longest street protest since the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. And that, that courage, that that sheer commitment spoke volumes. And at the same time, I was also very curious about why the church wasn't so resonant as it was during the civil rights movement. And I just wondered if Buddhism, and I don't mean mindfulness in a kind of um, secular vein, but Buddhism as a religious tradition, as a, a set of teachings, a set of understandings, a set of practices, of course, very varied depending on lineage. But if Buddhism, as a tradition could respond to what these activists were so compelled to offer because burnout is real and exhaustion is real. And, and I, I saw both the determination when I went, I took students there and I also saw that fatigue. And so that began this query that led to the writing of this book. Could Buddhism as a tradition respond? Maybe not as a set of institutions, but as a tradition. And I think, yes. I think that is what this book attempts to offer and to say. And it also, and we'll get to this when we have conversations, it also says, don't give all of yourself away that, that um, as you turn outward, it's so important to turn inward. So we'll unpack some of that. But the other aspect that I want to put out is that for those of you who have read the introduction, um, you already know that, but it's that this was clearly also not simply uh, a writing exercise for me personally, that I, I have to do my own work. I have done much of my own work and Buddhism has provided that foundation. And I'm grateful, so, so grateful for what I have learned from my teachers. You know, much of what I had to turn to was absence in my own life. And much of what I sought to, to um, embody in my own practice was what it means to grapple with my own suffering. It's personal, it's interpersonal, and of course, it's also systemic. So the, the energy that went into this book was really an energy that was both outward facing and communal, but it was also deeply internal. And we'll talk about this, but I'll just sell you, tell you at this point some of the core uh, findings, if you will. So one is that in a very particular way, people of African descent are dealing with trauma. And it's a trauma that, that goes back to the transatlantic slave trade that is rooted in the auction block, and family separations, and the tremendous violence that people of African descent encounter in this country, that in 
emphasizing or turning to these very specific sets of trauma that people of African descent uh, who practice Buddhism, that there is a great emphasis on communal practices, on honoring community, on honoring ancestors, on bringing ancestors into the space. There are some very, very creative practices and liturgies, um, and we can talk about that a bit. But yet another aspect of this, as, it's, as people of African descent practice Buddhism, and I say this broadly speaking, you know, it's across lineages, is that this body, which in broader society, in our uh, society which uh, privileges certain narratives, certain bodies, certain phenotypes, certain hair textures, uh, certain kinds of intelligences, plural, that this body has been reclaimed as a vehicle for liberation. And actually today I was writing a lecture for my class and working with the Satipatthana Sutta, just how radical it is to turn to the body and for the body to be so central in practice, but to also strip away these social meanings and to see this body as a vehicle for enlightenment. It's such a radical thought and one that is not part of our dominant narrative or dominant narratives, plural. And the last thing, I don't know how much we'll be able to get to this, but it's important to say is that this way of living into the teachings, um, this seeing the body as a vehicle for liberation, this deconstruction of dominant narratives, all of it is really in line with the best parts of the Black radical tradition, especially those parts that emphasize psychological liberation. So much of my argument overall is linking the interpretations that Black Buddhists bring to Dharma to this larger tradition of the Black radical tradition. And, and it's powerful, it's powerful, it's, it's centuries old, it's emphasizing liberation, and it's saying that actually Buddhism has a place in this tradition, and it's being lived out today. And this work is an attempt to make visible how Black people, how Black teachers are interpreting Buddhism and continuing the Black radical tradition. And in my own life as an activist and as a scholar, as a mother, that is very powerful. So I'll just, I'll stop there. We have lots of questions. And again, your uh, people of African descent, Sangha within a Sangha has brought so much energy to this particular conversation already. Thank you, Rima, for that introduction. I'll start with the questions. I have a couple of longish questions and then we'll turn to Chike, uh, who will also ask her questions. You know, you, you, um, I, I want to first start by saying that this is a very special book because it is so erudite, yet it is so, as you say, Rima, so much of you is in it. You can feel in every page that you have walked that path. And it's both internal and external, and it's it's pulled together um, a tradition in a very new and um, whole way. And I just want to thank you for that. Um, it's it. I have to say, I'm you know, I would just honestly say it's quite a feat. And thank you for doing that. Um, 
So in your book, and as you've already mentioned, there, there are several components that you describe that appear over and over again, sort of in an organic way among Black Buddhist practitioners, Black Buddhist teachers. And um, I just wanted to go over those a little bit more so that people can fully get the feeling of those and also ask you perhaps to relate that the best you can to the wider Buddhist practice for people who perhaps of not African descent. So the first one that you talked about was the trauma and that how that brings in the need for, for awareness of the body and for somatic liberation. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's such a good question. And also your emphasis on somatics um, and, and very carefully linking the two of those, I think is so important. So I'll, I'll actually give you an example um, based on the interviews. I did two interviews with this one teacher whose name is Devin Berry about why it's so important to both name and be very explicit. And I think, in fact, quite detailed about the levels of intergenerational trauma that people of African descent experience, and then also why the embodied component is so necessary. So uh, by way of Devon's story, there, as I mentioned, there is a history of absence and separation, of dislocation, of simply not knowing. I can speak to it, I think, almost every person I know who is of African descent can speak directly to this absence. And Devin is someone who has taken that and gone to plantations and meditated, sometimes for months at a time, has sat in slave quarters and has gone back, has actually now structured retreats around this, but gone to this place where so much violence and so much uh, separation took place and has confronted that and and is very influenced by Titnat Han. And part of the reason Titnat Han has become so important to so many people of African descent is not not only the emphasis on socially engaged Buddhism, but because there are embodied practices within that tradition, like bowing, prostrating is so central, walking meditation. And what I have learned is that, these practices are so important within Thai's tradition because of the fact of trauma, because of the Vietnam War, because of so many members of his community coming in as refugees and experiencing tremendous, tremendous trauma. So I, I, I say this because it's important that we acknowledge the specificities. We also can see those specificities as part of a larger trauma, but that we find ways to work with that trauma in the body. So I emphasize stillness in my title, but as one of my friends, Josen Tamori Gibson will say, you can move and be still. That stillness is more of a way of being, but moving that trauma through the body is also very important. And, and it's important that there are practices that can meet those specific sets of trauma, that there are practices that can respond to what practitioners are bringing into the meditation hall. 
So that is something the book attempts to address uh, through these interviews with different teachers. And if I could follow up on that, it appears in the book that, and also in Devin Berry's work, that this is related to, as you say, the emphasis on ancestor and the emphasis you actually say in, in your book, there's a beautiful quote, um, liberation then is not solely a quality of seeing impermanence and attaining an unsurpassed level of wisdom and compassion. It is a result of ethical action upon the earth over many lifetimes. This divine mother in response to moral goodness blesses each person with nurturing support and protection. This material energy is spread through, of, throughout other spheres in early Buddhist teaching and depiction. So it seems like you're discovering a kind of earth mother, compassion, wisdom, ancestor, which is in Buddhism, but we often forget. Yes, I'm so glad that you brought compassion into your set of questions. And I'll just say, as I venture into the Dharma world, primarily as a scholar and professor, but also now teaching in Dharma spaces, that I often start with compassion. And it's because so much of the healing work uh, needs a container and, and explicitly needs the cultivation of compassion. So just as an example, I think this is quite different from uh, the forms of Zen practiced at Zen Mountain Monastery and Fire Lotus. But there is in the insight tradition, a practice called RAIN, and it essentially says, you know, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. But I always think we have to start with nurturing. Those of us who receive certain messages, and, and we have so deeply internalized these messages of inferiority, that actually the, the initial work is cultivating compassion, and then we can investigate, then we can explore our inner landscapes, but we have to resource ourselves in very particular ways that this is actually not me. This is, you know, the numerous teachers, the 40 teachers I interviewed and the other voices I included, but, you know, they are saying we have to, we have to preface or ground our work in compassionate practices that start with the self or non-self. We can hold both together. It's not an either or, but it is recognizing that the mind is layered in such ways, is conditioned in such ways that compassion and the cultivation of compassion is a very important, if not critical, container for doing this deeper exploratory work. And, and I love your bringing in the earth mother image, you know, so often um, it's it's noted, especially in scholarly work, I'm noticing that that when Siddhartha Gautama achieved enlightenment, it was in front of the body tree and Mara's arrows were raining down, he touched the earth and asked for support and she responded. So there's also a kind of maternal energy that comes about when we cultivate compassion, when we work with that kind of earth energy. And I, I, it's not to say that it's, you know, led by female-bodied people. I think you get this in the work of Lama Rad, for example, who's someone who talks a lot about um, earth and grounding and maternal energy. But, um, but it is true. There's, there is, at least in early Buddhist writings and images, there is an emphasis on kind of a female-bodied 
or you know an emphasis on a kind of motherly um, image and and language. Thank you. I also think about sometimes that the Buddha was set on his path by the loss of his of his physical physical mother, so that set him on the path to um, face his own suffering and alleviate suffering. Okay, um, that follows on to another point is you mention, you know, in this um, facing suffering by being able to be compassionate towards ourselves first as people of African descent who have suffered and towards others, an enlarged sense of self that arises from that. And I, I want again, I'm sorry, but to, to quote from the book because it's so beautifully written. A number of Black Buddhist teachers and long-term practitioners spoke of liberation as practice of relating to suffering skillfully. For Black Buddhist teachers, cultivating the skills of turning towards suffering and seeing it clearly without personalizing it or being attached to its particular forms is a practice of liberation. The inner strength to embrace suffering facilitates an ability to rise from what Tara Brock refers to as a confined fine sense of self, perhaps paradoxically, leaning into pain rather than avoiding it or masking it and feeling the depth of pain fully illuminate the possibility of a liberated way of being. Yes, I was just writing about this today. I'm teaching a class called The Dharma of James Baldwin and Audre Lorde and writing a book on that topic. And I am talking right now in this class a lot about suffering and how that courage to turn towards it rather than repressing it does lead to a kind of generosity. Um, I think most of all, a kind of strength. The way that Baldwin talks about it in The Fire Next Time is a kind of unshakable authority. I think that's such powerful language. And I think that's what we get with these practices. If we are committed, if we can stay with our pain, with our suffering, instead of turning away from it, we, we develop that stamina, that set of muscles, and that ability to turn towards it in such a kind of unflappable way and stay with it, that, that capacity to stay, I think, does lead to unshakable authority, what some of the early Buddhist texts will call confidence. The translation used the word confidence, but I, I love that, that language of unshakable authority. I think because it actually turns our notions of authority on, on uh, their very heads, multiple, plural, um, you know, the sense that by turning towards our suffering, we do achieve a sense of um, and directness so that someone might push us down, but it actually doesn't damage our self-worth, that someone might, you know, call us out in these ways that are meant to be belittling, but it doesn't register because it's not true. That inner authority that is cultivated and turning towards our own suffering allows us to see the falseness of accusations and narratives. I think the teaching on two truths, actually, this idea that while we strive towards an ultimate reality, we work through, we live out our relative reality, and yet 
in that process of walking through our own narratives in our daily lives, but holding in front of us this ultimate reality, we have more capacity to deconstruct that which is false and impermanent, right? So many of us who are of African descent, if not all of us, I think it, it actually is accurate to universalize this and say people of African descent, at least in um, societies that have been colonized, that we internalize these narratives, these messages of inferiority. So if we develop um, capacities, but also if we embrace teachings and frameworks, in this case, Dharma frameworks that allow us to see impermanence clearly, we can see how false and impermanent and simply wrong these dominant narratives are. I wanted to actually, if you don't mind, um, you had a beautiful quote by James Baldwin in the book, which seems to be very apropos. She, she's, you quote him saying, love takes off the mask that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. And when you mentioned Baldwin, you talk about his emphasis on extending compassion towards white people. He often says, you know, in so many words, they don't know any better, okay. you know? <laughs> and so that speaks again to that, what you're saying is that enlarged sense of self. And it's very, it's really quite remarkable the way that you bring together James Baldwin and also Audre Lorde, who has her own kind of dar very Dharma-like way of seeing the world into this. And as you were saying at the beginning, this is this is really interesting the way you've tied these two to to what appear to be separate poles, the Black liberation tradition and Black Buddhism, but you've 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 brought them together into a oneness. Let me stop there and let you talk. Oh. <laughs> thank you. No, excited. thank you. You can <laughs> well, I'm I'm so glad that you can see um actually i would say uh and this is this is what my teaching assistant will often say the the more constructive work of the book you know there's a lot of explaining a lot of illuminating and then in using james baldwin and audrey lord's writing so directly there's a lot of constructive work and kind of you know where i'm going and maybe i can say a bit about this later but actually i work a lot with the concepts of non-self um and and uh turning to their work and, and what they have to offer. But but it is true. I think Baldwin and Lord both, I'm so steeped in their writings right now. I think they both in very different ways give us that sense of daring, as you say, that taking off of masks, that that courage. And you know, while neither of them ever referred to Buddhism or claimed Buddhism, they live out a certain aspect of Dharma teachings in ways that I find quite profound. And, and part of it is that depth of compassion. They both have so much to offer with compassion. And part of it is that direct seeing and that unflinching 
desire, a, a real desire, a real commitment to, to tear apart, to deconstruct their own lives, their, their messages to write from that place of rawness. You know, they were unsparing in the way they talked about suffering, both of them. I just gave a lecture on that last week. And, and the why of it, they, they did it because it, in both cases, they were called forth in their immediate families, but also in the conditions they witnessed to say, no, this isn't okay. You know, they, they were from that um, unflinching bravery they were able to both look within them, look at their families of origin and look at the broader society and say, I choose something else. And what's more is I don't believe the lies I've been told. So that's that's some of the constructive work. I'll just say actually a little bit about the work on non-self, which is that I think they both demonstrate a way to work on conditioning. And I'm thinking specifically of this teaching of um, the the Pali term is sankara, um, but you know it, it's essentially pointing to our karma to work on conditioning um, that moves them and that moves all of us who resonate with their writings to that place of liberation, so that we aren't moving from a kind of knee jerk reactivity, but actually we have a capacity to pause, we have a capacity to be non reactive. What does it mean then to develop that capacity and face such tremendous suffering? And I think they are two people who demonstrate and who illuminate how to do that and why to do that. They speak also about the why of it. And the why of it is that it leads to greater freedom. They could see that, they could feel that, they certainly experienced it. I'll, I'll just, I'll have another quote of yours, inner spaciousness allows black practitioners to see the falseness of social constructs, including their own, and let them fall away. Instead of replacing white supremacist ideas with black essentialism, meditators strive to embody an inner awareness of what is taking place in their minds and hearts without comment or judgment. Simply the act of creating awareness in emptiness and silence facilitates a liberated way of being within oneself and in social environments. Okay. Um, unless you have anything more you'd like to add to those topics, I'm going to say thank you and pass on to Chike. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Robin. Well, um... Rima, thank you so much uh, for your for your time and and your wisdom and your thoughts. Um, I, I have probably more questions than we have time for, but I I will I want to start with a one that really resonated strongly in me, um, and um, uh, this is very short uh, quote you say in the book, um, and this is what I want to ask you to talk about for people of African descent. The challenge of relating to non-self is less about spiritual bypass and more about relating to language that suggests non-personhood. Mm. So I, I find that intriguing, you know, so much 
you, you've also just spoken, you know, non-self and how the view and the understanding, you know, of that part of the practice is really part of the pathway to liberation, right? Because then we can sort of lighten up on the conditioning and, and, and the talk and, and the stories that, you know, we were taught to understand about who we are and recognize they're not true, you know, and that could move in another direction. But language itself is so challenging. Um, and when we're talking about non-self and people of African descent in particular, I'm wondering how, um, uh, what you came across in interviewing um, all the teachers that you spoke with, you know, how they, res how they dealt with this question of language that suggests non-personhood is particularly challenging for people of African descent, even though we're talking about a practice that is um, offering the truth of non-self. Yes, it's very complicated. Thank you for that question. It's, it's actually one I asked very explicitly to all of my interviewees. And there were other questions I never asked in the you know, the themes came up spontaneously. Like I never asked a question about trauma and yet so much came out when I asked, but I did ask about non-self. And I think it's something that I struggled with initially as I embraced Buddhism um, as a tradition. I, I didn't really know how to interface with this language. Although when the teaching itself of the five aggregates is broken down. It's something I can adhere to, but the overall translation, not self, no self, non-self, however it gets translated, it, it, hit a, it hit a nerve. And so when I asked my interviewees how they received it or how they taught it, some of them said they avoided it because it was difficult to translate that, especially to beginning meditators. Some of the long-term practitioners talked about how early on they just did not understand it. But the fact of dehumanization, how it has manifested historically, how the remnants of, for example, being considered three-fifths of a human being in a nation that uh, relied on that interpretation of, of full human beings in order to sway political power in the drafting of the constitution, how that has landed and, and how the, the ripples of that or the echoes of that continue to manifest is, is real for many, if not all of us. And so what some teachers talked about is interconnection, how there's a way of talking about interconnection that allows them to talk about the impermanent self, the shifting self. Um, but but admittedly, some teachers acknowledged that, that their students have to be further along in their meditation practices before that can be introduced. I think what's powerful about non-self as a teaching, and this is again where I'm going in my own research, is that if we can embrace impermanence and we can start to deconstruct our own patterning, we can see feeling tones and, and really practice with that. And then uh, we can see perceptions and really practice with how our mind works. Then we can start to work with our habitual patterning, right? Then we can start to 
see our reactivity, how our parents talk to us, how our teachers talk to us, how then we may speak out of that conditioning. And if we just have this capacity to pause and turn towards that and see it for what it is. And I'll just say personally, I do this all the time as a parent. You know, my own patterning, you know, my the way I was talked to, the way I was reprimanded, and how that comes out in this kind of, you know, impulsive, you know, response to whatever chaos is taking place in my household. You know, if I can see that, and so often I don't, even now. But if I can, if I can interrupt that, I have the capacity to work towards a new way of responding, one that's more thoughtful, that also takes ownership, right? Ownership and responsibility for the harm I put on other people. And it also, I think, really allows us to name the ways we have been harmed with a kind of compassion and the ways that we self-harm with a kind of compassion. I think if nothing else, that's what I'm really getting at with this teaching of non-self and this new writing, this more constructive work using Baldwin and Lord, is that we have internalized so much harm as people of African descent. We have, you know, it's, it's part of the air we breathe, the water we swim in, there's so much harm. And we, we feel that harm, but then we, turn it on ourselves and those who are closest to us and we commit more harm of course it's unintentional we don't really even see it that's the sankara right that's the habitual patterning but if we can interrupt that there's just a little more space to not harm ourselves so much and to not create so much harm especially to those we are closest to those who are in closest proximity to us so that's where I think we have some measure of liberation in our daily lives, in our intimate relationships and within our own persons. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I think this resonated very deeply with me too, because I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that seems to be really alive um, just in the experience of being black in this country is is not being seen your voice doesn't matter you're not recognized or if you are it's a tokenism or if you are it's because of some idea about you being exceptional in some sort of way you know and not just like you know regular people whose voices matter you know it's almost like uh uh white you know a lot of white folks didn't even think that they had a race you know, it was like black people are letting you know, like, wait a minute, rice, whiteness is a constructed race as well. Like, let's understand our history here. So it just like being seen as a person of African descent, I think is so critical, has been for me really critical in moving to an understanding and, and a lived experience of non-self because it had to come first. And I think it is tied to perhaps what you were saying before about rain and starting with the end, right? Because the compassion for ourselves, we don't, we don't have that. I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. Compassion for who I was in a brown body in this world, that's not something that was a given. That was not a birthright. I did not mm -hmm. have it. And so I had to get to some compassion about just being okay to exist and take up any space at all before I could start to em, em, embrace 
um, you know, a, a fuller understanding of reality that, and I think it's related to very strongly to the need to, because practice in the world is what we're talking about, right? It's not a mental exercise only, right? It's like, we're talking about how we want to live our experience of being alive, mm -hmm. right? And so we have to have some compassion for who that person is, because that's the person that gets plopped into the world wherever we are interacting with the skin bag we particular, you know, we're wearing, you know? And so I think, you know, anyway, I really appreciate you raising that, that quote, it's a short sentence and there's so much in that, mm. which I just really thought was important, but I'll, I'll move on. So you hear you're quoting someone else. Um, I think you're, you're quoting uh, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation um, by Sadula, together with Reverend Angel, uh, Quota Williams, and Lama Rod. And they, they say there, whiteness, uh, that the whiteness of and racism within mainstream Buddhist communities and organizations in the United States amplify rather than deconstruct systems of suffering. And the internalization of hatred due to skin color is a particular form of suffering. It can be healed by Dharma practice, yet the isolation experienced in predominantly white sanghas, along with microaggressions and the inability to relate to cultural perspectives, reiterate the very systems that initially created harm. Okay. So I, I have... I, uh, that resonates with me as a lived experience I've had over my many years in the MRO. Mm -hmm. And I feel we've made a lot of progress and there's still a long way to go, but I feel there has there's certainly been progress. And microaggressions from the White Sangha happen to me still regularly. Um, and I cannot be totally concerned with someone's intention. You know, right? Like the, the intention matters, uh, but also the effect on me matters. So I was just wondering, especially since you've interviewed so many of these teachers of color, whether you've ever witnessed either, you know, speak on that in general, if you, if, if, if you, if you wish to, but I was wondering specifically whether you've witnessed the race gap bridged in an authentic way hmm. within any Sangha. And if so, how, and what does it look like? It's a big question. I communicated this via email and I'll, I'll say it again. So I, I will say first, you are absolutely not alone that your experience in a predominantly white Sangha is echoed and mirrored and reverberates across lineages, across traditions that it was spontaneously spoken to over and over and over again. And what Reverend Angel and Yasmin Saidula and Lama Rod are pointing to is a kind of analysis, but very personal experience of how harm gets recreated within predominantly white sanghas. And as you say, often unintentionally, or as James Baldwin would say, you know, with a kind of blindness, right? Like if there, it's, it, but, but I think you're pointing to the fact that intentions are perhaps important to name, but that's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on how 
the experience was received and lived out, that that matters tremendously. And a big part of this venture of writing this book is not to locate our voices within whiteness. And if you notice in the introduction, I don't actually engage that literature at all. I use Kevin Quashie's book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, to say actually what matters is our inner lives. And, and if we are only seen as these external moral actors who face outward and we don't get the opportunity to privilege and make visible our inner lives, including the recognition of harm that's done, that you know we too live into racism, that that is yet another way of of uh, supporting a white supremacist society. So it is absolutely important to be made visible and for those experiences to be heard, to also not be so isolated. I will say what I have seen happen with great skill is the ability to name harm and to have that naming of harm received very um, spaciously by the people who have created harm. And so I will say, I think it is possible with deep practice to move from a place of defensiveness or I only meant to do, or I'm so sorry that I, but always with the emphasis on the actor, I think it is possible to create a kind of um, a community, to create a set of conditions in which harm can be named and received without defensiveness. It does require deep practice. That is what I have observed. It does require the capacity to be non-reactive on the part of the actor. But I have seen that done. I, I would say I have not seen a depth of community um, which a multiracial sangha has been able to um, to, to do that in a way that, that I have personally observed, but I think there are some initiatives and I think this is also fairly new work that uh, sanghas are becoming more multiracial somewhat rapidly uh, in recent years. And so the hope is there will be more receptivity on the part of white sangha members, you know, to allow the space for harm to be named without a kind of reactivity and without a kind of defensiveness. Thank you. Um, yeah, I do think, I do think there's so much there. And I think, you know, how do we bring wisdom to bear on the co-creation of our lives, including co-creation of Sangha? Um, you know, I, uh, uh, I have this question and I, I think we've, you've talked a little bit about it, but I, I think I want to just lift it up again. And um, Lamarat is really, um, I think, eloquent on, on recognizing his words about um, our historical trauma as well. You know, uh, but he, this is just something I struggle with. Um, and I would just love to hear your thoughts about it. So, you know, because it, it seems to me it's the shared pain of racism itself that's central to creating belonging among people of African descent in Black Sanghas. Um, I'm wondering how have you seen the truth of dukkha successfully extended to all humanity in ways that enrich people of African descent lives? 
while we're also working with present and historical trauma. This actually, I did a book launch in Asheville. This question came up from a black nun who was really, really wrestling. So it's it's one I've had a chance to ponder. And I think naming the particularities is really critical. We have to acknowledge, we have to be able to turn to what has been done, the damage. And, and I also think if you are in community, if we are in community, that it's important that the community be able to name that and recognize that as well. I do think that a sense of settling and belonging is that being seen, including, not limited to, but including that harm that has been created, that could be, that is often perpetuated. And, and we are all human. We all will suffer old age, sickness, and death. We are surrounded by that. We, we all have ways in which we've been harmed. I think there's a capacity also, this does, I think, also require deep practice to that, that larger heart, if you will, that larger uh, self or non-self, if you will. But to be able then, and I think it starts with ourselves, to see our own suffering, to turn towards that, to be very present with that. And then with so much tenderness to also be able to not so much ignore, that's not what I mean by this language of drop away, but to also say, and, you know, yes, and, and to be able to meet the suffering of other peoples with that same tenderness and compassion, I think is also a part of our practice, yeah. but it can never be at the expense of our own lives. And in fact, it's when we give so much oxygen to our rage, you know, to the hurt, to the harm we've experienced, when we really allow some spaciousness, some errors, you know, for allow that to surface and, and allow ourselves to really fully embrace and to be able to say, yes, this has happened. Yes, I feel. To give ourselves permission to feel with that container of compassion, that's when we have just so in such an organic way, that spaciousness to meet other people's suffering. But I don't think it's something we can try to do. I think we try to cultivate that capacity to meet our own suffering. And then, you know, as our heart opens, we then have that ability, that capacity to meet other people where they are. It's not a forced energy. I, I, I really appreciate the, the, the word tenderness mm. there and, and, and how important it is um, like to feel that. I, I almost, you, you didn't write, I don't know that you use this word specifically in the book, but um, what I'm, what's, what's landing with me right now is how, not only how important that process is not to rush, like that, that bypass can really happen oh, I know, I'm feeling this pain. It's so tied to stuff, but you know what? No self, everyone's experienced dukkha. Let's just skip over it, you know? And it's, it's so important what you're saying about like really letting that in, really, really feeling it and, and, and grief, yes. you know, and processing the grief yes. of all of that, all that I've carried through my, years of life at like like a 
80 pound backpack that I could never take off. And yet this is an amazing life and an amazing opportunity to be of service an amazing opportunity to work through challenges with, with many people on many different fronts um, for the benefit of all. Um, you know, and the radical thing for me, it took me a very long time in practice to remember, like, I get to include me in that too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not that I need to live in that either, but I think I really had to go through a grieving process. And I'm just wondering, did you, did, did any of the teachers that you interviewed speak about sort of the acceptance of this historical and present pain, you know, of living in a body that's not part of the dominant structure as a process of grieving? Hmm. I want to actually point you to a book called Grieving While Black that came out recently. Do you know this book, Brashia? I don't, I don't. Oh, it's, okay. um, it's worth, just because of what resonates with you, I think it's really worth reading. And, and this is precisely what she is taking on. And she, she worked as a chaplain um, and writes from that perspective. But, but that grief work is so such, there's no substitute for it. And, and so you were asking, are there any teachers who tell me again? Well, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking also about, you know, our, our Sangha has done work with Resma Mannequin's work and Mm. um, what a lot of, a lot of different, you know, work. And and I really appreciate some of the body practices and you speak about um, how, the community focus of black communities, people are bringing in many different kinds of practices, dancing, different things on people's altars, you know, many ways to celebrate. And and part of what I took away from some of that was the celebration was a way to just sort of like own the pain, you know, Mm. of the past and celebrate the loss and the aliveness today, you Mm. know? So I was just, you know, one, I was wondering whether or not um, any of the teachers that you spoke with spoke of embodied practices for working through this grief in this way. Yeah. Or such, yeah. This way. Yes, yes, yes. And, and it actually, it was such a learning curve for me. This was not something I thought about at all when I started the research for this book, but it came up a great deal in part because of how intense this grief work is. Um, you know, present time, like even, even today, just returning and returning. I think, you know, I mentioned Bershia Wade's book and there are others, people like Zenju, maybe, you know, um, Zenju Earthland Manual's work. And, you know, she's someone who, who um, speaks so directly to it, but this, this emphasis on how we skillfully work with our suffering, how we move towards our body, um, how we reclaim our body and and in a certain way, and I'm thinking about Sebene Selassie's book. She wrote a book called You Belong, You Know It, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Seb too, just the way she talks about dancing. So it's 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 turning towards the body, but it's also um, being present with the cultivation of joy. And part of that is allowing these, these different practices. So I'll just give you an example. Um, in 2018, yeah, just about four years ago, a group of teachers 
uh, multi-lineage teachers gathered at Union Theological Seminary. It was the beginning of um, bringing teachers, Black teachers of different lineages together to talk about many, many of the, the themes and the questions we're talking about tonight. And there was, there was a lot of conflict initially. This is where, I, when I talked about how I've seen it handled so skillfully, I was just amazed. There was a lot of namings, the specificities of suffering. And then on Sunday morning, there was a lot of dancing. And it was beautiful. I mean, people just in the center of the circle, just alive. It was so incredibly beautiful. It was, it was just profound. And it was Dharma. It was a Dharma space and it was sanctioned. It was black music. It was, you know, there were there were some blues, but just a lot of joy as well. And I think oh. it's those different cultural affects and the ways in which our bodies are allowed, given permission to embrace those different cultural affects that really do make these different forms of Buddhism. I'm going to say this in a plural way, because again, I think it's not one tradition or lineage that's emerging as much as across lineages, there are different forms of practice that are emerging and I think giving life and making visible people of African descent. And that music, that dancing, that joy, the language of all of that is central to these new forms of Buddhism. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think next we're having a discussion between Shukin and Rima. And then we'll have a Q&A. We'll have time for a Q&A before it's over. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm just really happy to sit here and listen to the three of you talk. <laughs> um, but I'm also happy to, um, to join you in that. And so um, I, I've been taking some notes and, and almost all of the things I've noted, we could spend a lot of time talking about. So um, Rima, we didn't really talk about how, how you wanted to proceed with this. Do you want to take the lead or do you want me to take initiative here? Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the Sangha and um, some of what, especially the, members, both Robin and Chike, have introduced and, and what that means for you as the leader of the Sangha, if you feel, I mean, that also could take quite a bit of time. But I know you, we've talked about this now over, I would say, almost two decades, how you, Shugen, receive these experiences and, and what it means for your community. Mm. Well, um, trying to think of how to collect my thoughts because there's so many different points. Um, I guess one thing that I was thinking as I was listening to uh, you and, and Chike and Robin speak was how um, one of the reasons I feel like the Dharma is so exquisitely um, positioned in a way to speak to this um, what we're discussing tonight is because um, it is both very particular and very universal at the same time. And so I think so much of, in essence, of what I hear you speaking about 
could be applied to, to, in a sense, every person's experience. And yet, at the same time, there are particular aspects of this that are, that are not universal in terms of identity, race, gender, and so on. And that to recognize, particularly, I think, for people within um, a dominant group identity, like a white person, um, where the, the kind of culture is that my experience as a white person of the world is the world, is to really absorb and really work at absorbing again and again the fact that that is not true. And that the way I experience the world as a white person, which is both being in the world as a white person, but it's also being experienced in the world as a white person. It's going in both directions, right? And that that um, changes, affects everything. And that in that way, you know, I am inherently, my experience of the world is inherently biased um, in the direction of my own self and my own identity, the identity I've been assigned, you know, as a white person. And that I think for what I was thinking about as I was listening to you was how for the white members of the Sangha, how important it is for us to understand and in as visceral or tangible a way as possible that um, the, the diversity of experiences of being, not only in the world, but in our Sangha, you know, and I mean, Chike, some of you have spoken in particular ways in terms of microaggressions and just offhanded comments and, and experiences and just, you know, walking into a space and feeling like you can see yourself being here and being being comfortable and welcomed here or not. Um, and so to sort of um, loosen and let go of that sense of knowing that, that if I have certain experiences that th therefore I know what your experience is in the same moment, in the same situation and realizing that I don't and that I won't ever, right? And that within that, I think of Wendell Berry we're constantly learning, which means we're constantly living within a certain amount of ignorance. How should we proceed? And he said, we should proceed with humility. And so I think of, of that as such an important aspect for, for white folks, for people in dominant groups, um, to, to learn that, to experience that in a very alive and visceral way, the humility of not knowing. You know, when you, when you were talking about um, blindness, um, you know, that sort of whiteness is a kind of blindness. And I was thinking that it's kind of like having a false view, having a false or not having a right view. Having a right view doesn't mean that I don't have a view. I have a view. It's just not true, right? It's not in accord with the way things are. And that blindness, a blindness of being, you know, of, of being caught within, you know, dominant identity is, is I'm seeing something, right? It's not that I don't see anything. I see something, but it's just not in accord. You know, it's just not in accord with the way things really are. It's not in, 
in accord with the way other people are seeing and experiencing things. So I don't know, is that making any sense? I'm, I'm... Well, it definitely sounds like that humility is also a kind of deconstructing. And, you know, we, the three of us spent some time talking about what it means to deconstruct these dominant cultural narratives. And what I hear you saying is that that is central for the work of the white members of the Sangha to also deconstruct assumptions. And it, and it also sounds like within that humility, there is necessarily the need for a cultivation of spaciousness and the capacity to receive the, the message that that wasn't okay, that that was harmful. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of a knee-jerk defensiveness or you know an attempt to explain, to actually have the capacity to receive that to, right. and, and to be able to say, I can commit harm, even if I have been practicing for 30 years, even if I'm a monastic or a teacher, that I can commit harm. And so I think part of the question for the Sangha is what happens when harm is committed? Yeah. And, and that that might require several layers of response, but it does seem like that is a question to, to turn towards absolutely. as a community, as an institution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you were speaking about rage, anger, grief. And I think that, again, for people in, in dominant, well, I speak for myself, um, that to experience that um, as a man from women, as a white person from people of color can be very frightening in the beginning because part of the dominant culture is, is control, mm. right? And of controlling the narrative, controlling the emotions and so on. And, and so to be able to um, be patient and sometimes patient means to endure, mm that the discomfort or the fear, right, of experiencing very strong emotions and to feel implicated in that, right? It's not just somebody on a distant mountain who's, who's struggling, but it's somebody right in front of me who is angry and angry at me or is directing something, you know, that I have done or that I have said. And to be able to experience that in a truthfulness, you know, that there's a truth here that I, as a practitioner, you know, my vow is to want to hear that, who want to get to that, because that means if I'm doing, if I'm causing that in you, then I am not liberated, right? Mm -hmm. I am not free. But to be able to experience, you're talking about not, not just reacting, right? And to be able to hold ourselves in that moment, right? And see all of that going on, right? Both the outer aspect, which is whatever's happening in front of me and then whatever is happening inside of me, and to just be calm, be patient, not necessarily calm, but be patient and be able to hold all of that and not react, which means to not try and assume control and that it's really very freeing. I think when we acknowledge our humanity and our frailties and our mistakes and so on, it's actually very liberating because then we don't have to pretend that we don't have those aspects, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to try and assume that role or that position. 
I, I really think you are onto something, Shugan. I'm thinking of Baldwin and his writing in The Fire Next Time. And one of the things he says in, as he thinks about dominant white culture is that white supremacy is perpetuated when white people don't uh, want to turn to their own fear, their rage, their grief. And he says the way it gets perpetuated is it all gets projected onto Black bodies. Everything white people don't want to feel gets projected onto Black bodies. But what would it be to actually have the skill to work with the depth of those feelings and those mind states? What would it be to actually have that capacity? And I think at its essence in my own life, and of course I don't put this on anyone else, but it's actually developing the skill to work with feelings, to give myself permission to feel. And if we could take on uh, that that venture and if we developed those muscles you know if we did our own work essentially then we would disrupt enormous I mean we'd create waves we would disrupt so many patterns and that ability to stay as you were saying you use the word patience and I think to stay to stay to stay to just stay regardless of whatever comes up that is hard work but if we can do it then we can receive without being defensive and without being reactive. Yeah. And that will disrupt white supremacist culture, I think. Yeah, and I think also of, of James Baldwin's asking the question of why do white people need people to be black, right? Why do, why do we need racism? Why do we need an inferior? Right? Yes. And to really investigate that, because of course that's, Part of the problem with the dominant culture is being on the receiving end of unearned advantages and benefits, right? It's there's there's it's like, you know, it's like the two fish that jump out the New Yorker cartoon and one says points at the water and says that's the stuff I'm telling you about, right? <laughs> that it's hard to see it, you know, when it's so, when it were so inculcated, absolutely. and in, in a way, you know, it's been designed to work. Oh, know, absolutely. But I think the um, the staying with, you know, that's where I think Buddhism and just basic practice, because from the very beginning, in our own different ways, in our own une unequal ways, are experiencing a lot of, you know, disappointments and sort of humiliations, you know, as we encounter ourselves, as we see ourselves to be, not as we imagine ourselves to be you know, as we deal with our karma and so on, and to be able to sit in that and face that without denying it and suppressing it and without just distracting ourselves with explanations and narratives, to me is kind of the training ground, right, for, for being able to develop that kind of tolerance, that kind of patience. And to, I think of it a lot in terms of dependent origination, that in thinking of how every, every moment, every, every conditioned experience is a result of karmic actions and conditions. And it helps to keep it from being so personal. You know, why am I having this thought? Why am I reacting in this way? You know, like what's wrong with me? And it helps to sort of free us of that, the trap of that binary. You know, that if I, if I recognize anything, any kind of racist thought, word, or action arising in me, that that means I'm racist and I'm a bad person. You know, I don't want to be that person. And so, you know, I have to deny that. And so to yeah. really 
go beyond that false binary, mm-hmm. you know, and just mm-hmm. realize we're, you know, all in our own ways have been drinking this water, right? And we, we're all affected, you know, in different ways and not equal ways, but we're all affected. And then, then it's more like you said, it's the su- looking at suffering from both the personal but the systemic. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it, what does personal even mean? You know, how many of my thoughts are just solely mine, right? <laughs> Did I make them up? They didn't come from any other influence. I mean, it's like. I think that's where the compassion comes in that, you know, the importance of saying, I have been conditioned in this way. So to be able to hold that alongside the fact that harm is, has been committed, is being committed, is being perpetuated, to to be able to take responsibility within that larger understanding of how we have all been conditioned in certain ways. I think that that's very important for anyone who is, um, let's just say, very evolved or um, deeply serious about their practice. And I see a hand by maybe one of your students. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, perhaps it's me. This is Yugaku or Tom Harima. Um, I just want to defer first to see if there's. Um, any people of color who or women who want to go, and then if there's still time, I'd love to share my question. I think it's okay for you to share your question. I'm scrolling through right now. Okay, I'll just wait a moment till you're done scrolling. I don't see any other raised hands. Okay. Um, so I've been focused on this work in different ways for some years, personally and professionally, including um, directing a bias awareness program. And I have racist thoughts frequently and been involved with Sangha for some years as well. Um, and I have a kind of a frustration it feels like it just in my experience is still narrow. While I've had some leadership, I've been in particular discrete groups, but I've experienced only an occasional sharing of us white people of our own racism. I can think of an anecdote where somebody else who's in some leadership grabbed her pocketbook and took it to the bathroom when she was sitting near an African-American man and almost immediately saw that. But we've been taught tonight and by Shugen and by many of our our readings about the momentum of the karma that has created the racism and white supremacy within us. And I heard you speak of um, the fear and the rage and the grief. And And I wanted to ask you if you have any suggestions Um to help us, especially alone with other whites, white people, um, share the stuff we're not proud of and feel it and have some transformation. 
And I'm somewhat at a loss, Rima, meaning perhaps the pace is natural. We're certainly, as Chike mentioned, we're certainly um, growing in this way. It's hard to hear that she still regularly feels the microaggressions. But can you suggest anything, point to any resources, any sanghas, any writers of color or not um, to help us, especially alone with other white sangha members, move into this space? Because I might be the only person often having, one of the only people having racist thoughts regularly, or I might not. But it feels like a really important place where easily and even regularly white people share that with each other as just part of their healing and to cultivate our ability to, to give everywhere and to our Sangha members of color. And Tom, let me just, I, I'm sorry, and help me with your Dharma name. I wanna make sure I pronounce it correctly. Yukaku. Yukaku. Mm -hmm. What you're asking, are there resources for a group, like a white affinity group to go deeper? Is that, did I hear you correctly? Um, yeah, yeah. Anything that, that comes to mind, there may be some things. It's always felt like Minneapolis sanghas are kind of doing great stuff, but I'm just curious what comes to mind for you. Yeah, resources to help us go deeper and be braver. Mm. Well, I, I will say, so much of my own work has been to privilege the voices of people of African descent. And on a certain level, I think I'm, I'm not very deeply versed in what is most helpful for white Sangha members. That said, I speak to a lot of predominantly white groups. Um, that was true when I taught at my little liberal arts college in North Carolina and, you know, true in somewhat in the Dharma world. And I, I did a Q&A with a well-known Black Lives Matter activist uh, a couple of years ago. And I just said, and, I, and this is what I'm going to impart to you. I just said, is there anything else you want to say? And she said, read Black voices. You know, she's saying this to the audience. And I just thought, yes, read Black voices. For example, while they are not uh, Dharma students, they were not, this is past tense, or teachers or even remotely, right now being steeped in the words of James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, these powerful, powerful, powerful ancestors. If you as white Sangha members took a deep dive, if you read essays and interviews and, and you know conversations, if you, watched documentaries, if you really, really listened, you would hear so much. So what I would say is direct yourselves, plural, to voices that scare you and really confront the truth of what they're saying and the feelings that come out, right? Because so much of this is about that emotional capacity to, to turn to your fear to turn to whatever is coming up. Oh no, I said the wrong thing. Oh no, I committed harm. To be able to really sit with the terror of that, right? Like, like so much terror can arise in especially that recognition that you created harm 
uh, against or towards someone you cherish or someone you would never ever in a thousand years want to hurt and yet you have perhaps inadvertently but the work actually is not then to cower in shame as our impulse, our reactivity leads us towards, but to actually turn towards the terror that rises up, to be able to sit with that. And, and if you can't do that in an immediate sense, you can certainly do that with the voices that are in print. They are powerful voices. They are courageous voices. They are no one's doormats. They are not gonna, <laughs> they are not gonna you know, lie down because you want them to lie down. They are very confrontational. So if you were, for example, as I am at this moment and with my graduate students, if you were to just take on those two voices, but there are multiple, there are so many voices you could turn to. And if you really just marinated in them, steeped yourself in them and developed the capacity to feel through what they are introducing, I think you personally, and I think your community collectively would take great strides at the very, very least. Thank you very much. And if I can just add a, a word to that, um, you know, Yugaku, we've been doing the What is Whiteness groups for a while now, you know, and that's really what, you know, a significant part of what that is for. And so I would, you know, really urge all of us who are involved in that work to be making sure that we're utilizing that for this reason. You know, I mean, that's the point is to be able to be within, you know, a group of, of, of white folks where you're not worried about hurting someone, a person of color, a black person through an unintended, you know, unintended word or, or, and so, because if we're not using that for that reason, what, how are we using it? And so we have this in place, you know, which is really designed for that purpose. So may we use it well, please. <laughs> I see we have a couple more hands. Yeah. Um, how about Anrin? Um, yeah, it's, it's so good to have you here. And, you know, I just, I'm reflecting on you know, when we were at the uh, Future of American Buddhism conference, there was also a lot of this tension in the air about the um, space to talk about the difficult stuff and the sort of conference format and maybe the white dominated sort of organizing of it kind of was always like, well, and now we don't have time for Q&A. Now that things are getting really into the painful or difficult conversations, let's move on to the next, you know, topic. Um, and I think many of us were commiserating about that. And hearing you tonight now, you know, uh, three months later after that, um, what's really hitting me is this idea of like white dominated sanghas is actually in its last um, um, years because at least in the United States, because, you know, by 2042, the U.S. will be a non-white um, uh, majority, you know, nation in terms of raw population. And I think sanghas, Buddhist sanghas will be feeling that, you know, years before we get to 2042. Um, so isn't it that this work, you know, again, like that, where is the center, right? Where is the, what, what are we, um, how do we sort of undo or work outside of whiteness 
it feels like this work is actually the future of what is American Buddhism, that it isn't just minority, what is, you know, Black Buddhism, Latino Buddhism, but this is actually what is the future of Buddhism in a post, you know, whiteness centered practice. Um, are, are people asking you this or your students who are, I assume are probably much more diverse, are they recognizing this or how are you thinking about it? What I will say, um, and I, I think there are disruptions happening all over, but I, I will say something that is front and center is that within what we call American Buddhism, there has been such a stark erasure of Asian and Asian American Buddhists and that there, I think, will be much more collaboration with the now emerging sanghas of uh, people of African descent and and uh, Latinx practitioners, that there will be much more, I, I think, um, kind of solidarity amongst those, I would say marginalized voices, marginalized communities. I mean, just thinking of who owns the publishing houses, who runs the magazines and, you know, the, the, the institutions and how that is um, being recognized and named and challenged so that there's, I think, much more emphasis on how Buddhism was carried, uh, especially to this continent and what we might call the West broadly. I know that's a contested term, but how, um, how that has happened and then uh, sort of been adopted with a disconnection from Asian lineages and Asian roots. And as that gets named, I think, what we call American Buddhism will expand in such ways that we will start to make visible these more marginalized communities. And what we are saying the future of American Buddhism is, is actually the history in so many ways of Buddhism and to really privilege that, right? Like when I, even now, when I open up my graduate courses or when I teach in Dharma spaces, I um, will acknowledge ancestors starting with the Buddha, but also the disciples of the Buddha and our Asian roots and our Asian lineages. And, and it, so it's not even the, just that it's the future, it's also a return and a privileging of the past, of, of a real history that's salient and so important to honor, to recognize and to uplift. So that's what I hope emerges sooner rather than later is that that gratitude and that, that um, embrace and most of all of that making visible. And we are at eight o'clock. I see there's one more hand. What do you think, Shugan? Would we go maybe a, a few more minutes? Sure, yeah. Ravi, I mean, it's up to you. You're, it's your, your lead here, but if you're willing, sure. I, I, I can do another five minutes. Okay. Late school start tomorrow, so <laughs> I have a little space. Okay, Ravi? Um, yeah, Rima, I just want to say, first of all, thank you. Um, a dear friend who's um, Pakistani and, uh, and Buddhist practicing the different lineage who's working with your book was um, like read me a passage from your book last, not, last night when we were on the phone and just was deeply moved. So thank you for all your work. Um, I kind of wanted to take up something you just said, actually, um, which was around like Asian, um, Asian bodies and, and sort of the collaboration with, um, with Black folks and Black Buddhists. Um, and like, I guess like, you know, I, I continue to um, have the deepest respect for all of you, for our teachers, for ZMM, 
Um, and at the same time for me, um, it feels clear that like ZMM and every Sangha really, every white blood Sangha, but every Sangha everywhere. But you know, in my experience, ZMM is not, does not offer a complete awakening. And I think that like um, that feels important to name and, and as we do this work, like, I think that, like, I feel a difference in white folk that sort of understand that and understand that there's something to learn from black and brown spaces and black and brown people um, versus not, versus there being this sense of separation and this sense of charity that white sanghas are doing for people of color. Um, and um, I'm just curious if that, that's something you've seen and like how you relate to that dynamic um, and, um, yeah. That's, I think, so powerful is to, uh, to put oneself in now, I say this collectively, as well as, um, in our own embodied experience to put oneself in a position of saying, we have to learn from people of color, um, who of course, um, as, this book talks about and as we're recognizing what we call American Buddhism I actually find that term really problematic but I'll use it for the moment um, but you know to to say we have so much to learn even as uh, for so many there are these long-standing practices and positions of authority and I I I have not seen much of that um, at this moment, I'll just say, you know, at this moment, which will change, of course, but, but I will validate and I do validate very much that that approach of, even if you're in a position of authority of seeing oneself as learning and of, of recognizing limitations, recognizing um, uh, a, a lack of um, expansiveness perhaps perhaps that's not the right word but but the the fullness to which you're referring that fullness of awakening i think being able to name that and and then to be able to parse that i think is that that position of humility that shugan you were referring to and and that is a very powerful act i think to to be grounded enough to be able to say i don't know or i'm in this place of receptivity even as you turn to me and now I say this again in a collective sense turn to me as people who have a certain set of knowledges plural to also recognize the finitude or the limitations and and so Ravi I think your point is is such an important point to end on you know what does it mean to in a very different way than uh, Chike and I were talking about absence, in a very different way to recognize, to name absences and what is not there and to be able to work with that, both um, in terms of language, right? To say, okay, you know, to be able to articulate that, but also in a deeper sense, in, a, in an emotional sense with a, a kind of humility and, you know, what might happen if we could puncture the kind of control to which Shugan was referring, you know, that set of, you know, kind of bearing knowledge and therefore being able to control, but actually to be able to receive and to dismantle, to deconstruct, to take apart, 
um, to be able to sit with how hard that feels and the chaos of it. But also, you know, again, going back to Baldwin's words, a kind of unshakable authority if you're able to actually have the muscles to turn towards that which feels so hard, so scary, um, you know, the kind of the kind of terror that might arise. So while I haven't seen it done, I have seen it referred to. And I think those of us with deep practices have some sense of this in our own personal lives. And it would be tremendous to build that out and to see that done in a collective way. I would just want to add, um, just to contextualize what I said, I, you know, I really do believe we're working to, uh, like we're, we're, we're all collectively in the work of awaken, of complete awakening, like together. And that like, this is like today is part of that process. And every time you come together as part of that process in a different flavor. So just wanted to add that context in before we close the fact of impermanence. But thank you for also putting that out there. I think that takes a lot of courage, Ravi. Well, thank you, Rima, for this really wonderful time together with you and bringing all of your work and yourself and um, your writings and your dedication to the Dharma and to really bringing this to its full fruition. You know, I think of that sort of the role of every generation is to sort of move it forward, you know, and sort of to to evolve it further. And so I really appreciate your heartfelt efforts in that. And to all the Sangha for joining us this evening, I hope this was helpful and that we're taking in and really reflecting on um, some of the things we've heard tonight. And Chike, I wondered if you would be happy to just close with, with a verse of the four measurables just to end with may all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering may all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. May all beings live in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and delusion. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you, Rima. Be well. Thank you, Rima. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It was beautiful. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you for your Thank engagement. You. Thank you. We can't wait for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working at it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone.